This is a podcast by The Straits Times. Welcome to A Game of Two Halves, a sports podcast by The Straits Times. I'm your host, Jonathan Roberts, stepping in this week for your regular host, and I'm joined today by David Lee, sports correspondent for The Straits Times. Hello. Hello there. Now, over the weekend, FA Cup action, if you're still interested in the FA Cup, sorry, Liverpool fan talking there, <laughs> Manchester United beat Arsenal 3-1. Woohoo! That's right. David is obviously a Manchester United fan, and he's probably the best person to talk about this next subject, which is... Ole Gunnar Solskjaer, the man currently in charge of Manchester United, the man who's made them exciting again after yeah, the... for sure. Well, doldrums is too polite a way to say for the uh, <laughs> last stint of the Mourinho uh, tenure. But should he stay on? He's interim manager at the moment. Should he become the full manager? Eight games, eight wins. I think that's definitely a cause for optimism. And if he's interested, definitely it's a great CV to, to put forward uh, for his case but I like to say hold your horses eight wins uh, you have to consider the Spurs win and the Arsenal win are, are the only games that they, they face the top team and I would like to see them actually lose for once um, I know funny thing David for, what are you saying funny <laughs> thing for a United fan to say I know but I would like to see them react to adversity you know, what, what happens when they lose? Uh, in Mourinho's first season, they won the Europa League and the FA Cup and, you know, all was smooth sailing. It was people saying Mourinho is the saviour and all that. But look what happened in the following seasons. Once they start losing a game and then it, didn't, it wasn't just a game. Once they lost the game, it became another, another. And, you know, people started pointing finger, fingers and... and the, the environment just became very toxic. So I, I like to see how social manages that you know when when they start losing um you know people's real characters may 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 come out now the players do you mean pogba yeah possibly you know now players are, are trying to impress um their new manager trying to get back into the team uh maybe raise their market values and all that um so yeah i, I like to see how they react to adversity so you're saying that he's still technically on the new broom bounce this is still the, the honeymoon period yeah, if you I, like i think the united board have has done well it's a great it, move to bring him in yeah and at the right time too you know if if he, they had brought him in before the Liverpool game and they had lost the Liverpool match we wouldn't be having this conversation and they have found the perfect time to install him and you know they, they still have three very winnable games Burnley coming up Leicester and Fulham and after that will be the real challenge they face uh, PSG in the Champions League followed by Liverpool in the league I think that that would be the real test but I'm I'm not saying I don't like the man he has transformed the club. Exactly. What I think is he knows that respect is, is a two-way street. You know, he, he respects the player and, and the players in turn respect him and give, give him the best. And he lets the players enjoy the football, you know. Um, you have to remember, in the team, there's still world-class players. They're not, they're not um, Manchester City or Liverpool, but they do have a world-class goalkeeper in David De Gea central midfielder and Paul Pogba and, and a relatively good forward line you know Rashford Martial Lingard and and he's made Lukaku look like a decent player <laughs> yeah so he hasn't exactly reinvented the wheel but he's just let people you know but uh, he is, pl- play what, what they're good at do what they're good at he is also the great myth of football he is the former player who comes back as a coach right. as a manager whichever term you want to use and leads the club to even further glory. And it's a, it's a beautiful thing to have. Zidane at Real Madrid right. is probably the, the best example. Right. 
Sorry, no, he's not. Kenny Daglish is the best right, example. Yeah. Sorry, what the hell saying? am I saying? Liverpool fan Good they're grief. talking. Yeah, yeah. But, uh. but it doesn't really always uh, work that way. I think it's a lottery when it comes to oh, ma- management. Um, you talk about former players, uh, not necessarily coming back to their former teams, but there are many former players who don't necessarily become good managers. You, in recent times, just, just look at Gary Neville, for example. Thierry Henry, you know, he's just been, oh, been, yeah. been removed uh, at, at Monaco. For me, I don't like it when a former player, uh, a great even, a great player goes straight into management, straight into a top job. You know, like maybe Ryan Giggs at Wales, uh, right. Roy Keane at Sunderland, uh, Mark Hughes also with, with Wales and, you know, uh, Thierry Henry and Gary Neville. I prefer if, if they work their way up, pay their dues. Because it's two different things, right? Playing and management. And Solskjaer, for me, has done that. You know, he, he's uh, managed at Molde first, uh, back in his home country. Led them to their first title uh, in, a, in 100 years. Okay, he has that unfortunate stint at Cardiff uh, when he didn't have results. But, you know, which, which manager doesn't have that on their CV? But at least he's paid his dues. Uh, he's worked his way up. And that's what I like about Solskjaer. It is interesting that everyone is so concentrating on gigs or for a very brief time keen to be that person who comes back and then he comes and does it in such style as well in such a joyful way it has to be yeah joyful is the way there there are just some people in football where you you look at them and and looking at them makes you feel happy you know he's not called a baby faced assassin for for no reason Um, he has just that cherubic look you know and when you look at Roy Keane uh, you know, so so gruff and tough. Maybe some teams need that, but after uh, you know the tough times United had, you 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 really need uh, someone to to liven up mm. and, and bring some positivity back uh, in into the club. Well, talking of positivity, if they do beat Burnley Wednesday morning Singapore time, I believe uh, it will be the first time that they've won nine matches in a row since Cristiano Ronaldo left in two thousand nine. Happy times. Uh, but yeah, hold your horses. I, I, we're not going to win the league. Just hope the winning run continues. But like I say, I'd I, I like to see them, how, how they react to a, a defeat. Talking of big defeats, over in Melbourne, Melbourne, Australia, of course, Novak Djokovic has won the men's title of the Australian Open by trouncing Rafael Nadal. 6-3, 6-2, 6-3. Hammering. A hammering. The beast broken. Yeah. <laughs> well, uh, to talk about his experiences watching the men's final and indeed the women's final is our assistant sports editor, Rohit Bridgenath. He's over in Melbourne and we've splashed out on some upmarket tin cans and premium quality string. Now, Rohit, Nadal had not dropped a single set before the final and then he was swept away by Djokovic. So, what do you think happened? First things first, I, I think Nadal had a fair point when he said that, you know, because he's had so many injuries and when he came back, he was playing well offensively, you know, when he was hitting big shots and he was serving well. But, you know, his best game is his defensive game when, he, you know, he forces players to hit another ball and another ball and another ball. And that's really testing. And I think to be able to play that defensive uh, sort of tennis, you have to be physically in your best conditioning. And I don't think he was there yet. Having said that, I don't think any type of Nadal at this time would have, you know, managed to beat Djokovic in the final because Djokovic was just playing a higher form of tennis. I mean, it's very difficult. I don't know how many Grand Slams I've seen, how many finals I've seen. 
and I mean, Djokovic was playing tennis I had almost never seen. I mean, it was so flawless. It was so perfect. I mean, I, I always look at him as a scientist. He does everything in his diet, in his training, anything that he can to just be a little bit better. He's always fine-tuning his game. You know, he's like a mechanic. And I think he went through a little bit of a tough time in 17 because he had won so much. And sometimes when you win so much, you don't know really where you're going to go. And then your game flattens out. And then, of course, last year he had an elbow injury. And now, you know, he's, again, the greatest in the world. And look, if his health is okay, I think health is always the key. You've seen Andy Murray is injured and Rafa has injuries and Federer has had a few problems and is in decline. I think if Djokovic can stay injury-free, I don't see why he couldn't catch Federer. So, Rohit, how impressed were you by Naomi Osaka? With Serena Williams at the twilight of her career, is Osaka the new queen? Yeah, I'm really impressed with Naomi Osaka. I mean, a couple of things. One is, a lot of players win one slam and then it takes them a little while to sort out their games. And, you know, they can't manage the pressure and the tension for them to win a second slam. And she's won two slams in a row and that's extraordinary. Second thing is, she was doing well in the final and then, you know, she, she had the match in her hand. And then she got a little bit nervous and, you know, the occasion became too much and she let it go. And then she and she cried and she left the court, but she recovered. And that's the key thing. She got back her poise. And I think she's a player of great poise and of great character and great toughness. And I think that matters. And I think the third thing is she has a, she has a fantastic game. You know, she, 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 has a, she has a very strong serve. She has a very strong forehand. She understands the court. One of the things her coach is trying to do is trying to get her to come to the net more, to play the slice more, to play different types of shots. So she's only going to add to a game. So I think we have to be careful. You know, you can't compare anybody, you know, to, to previous champions. I mean, Serena Williams is, of course, the greatest player who's ever been there. But let's just say that this young woman is incredibly impressive and it will be interesting to follow her, her adventure. Now, you have to tell us more about Astra Sharma. I, I don't think everybody is going to be a great singles player. I think some people are going to be good doubles players. Uh, I don't know yet with Astra. She's, she's 23 years old in one sense. That's not young. And in another sense, it is not old. I think the really important thing for me was Roger Rashid, who used to be a coach of Leighton Hewitt and Gay Morfield, saying that she was, you know, probably the best national athlete that uh, he had seen come out of Australia. And that means Singapore as well, in a sense. Because, you know, she was born in Singapore and raised in Singapore and left when she was about 10. And she is a fabulous athlete and really wonderful to watch. So I think it's a question of now what she does with this confidence. I think, you know, players get confidence, but then they have to build on it. And, you know, they have to play tournaments. They have to travel. She won a lot. She won a decent amount of money. And then money is going to help her travel. And that's what she needs. She needs good coaching. She needs a few breaks. This was a good break. I'm sure, you know, the, the Australians have seen that, you know, she's got some talent. So they're going to partner with some good people at, you know, the Grand Slams, you know, which is really the places where doubles is a big deal, you know, well, mixed doubles, for instance. And uh, so it'll be interesting to see where she goes. And I think we should be interested in her because, you know, she, she comes from Singapore and she's a great story. And uh, let's see where she goes. Thank you, Rohit, all the way from Australia. Now, closer to home and featuring much heavier balls, the world of bowling has had some developments, hasn't it, David? Right. Um, Singapore bowling, actually. So in the last week, they celebrated their 10th anniversary of their Centres of Excellence. So different from other local sports, um, their Centres of Excellence are actually run mostly by private academies, 10 of them, in fact. So um, they're even thinking in the next two to three years uh, to relinquish uh, the management of the National Development Squad to these private academies so it's it's a good thing i think uh because 
Uh, they're trying to get the whole industry to level up, and that can only be good for the entire local system. But what does that actually mean for Singapore bowling? Right. So they are, the Singapore bowling is actually going to run level four and level five coaching courses. Um, so whoever are interested can take part and upgrade themselves. When coaches upgrade, these generally means uh, better players. And better players generally mean there's a wider pool of good players for the national team to choose from. And on the other hand, when coaches upgrade, it also gives Singapore Bowling, the National Sports Association, more options for for them to choose uh, to form their national coaching team. So we Singapore Bowling is already considered world-class, uh, especially for the women's team. And the men's team recently won bronze at the World Men's Championship. Well, I was going to say, because I mean, when right. I... As long as I've been in Singapore, right. bowling has always been, you know, a a medal yeah. potential thing. So, do we need to be better? Right. I I think uh, there's no end to the quest for excellence. Right. You can't just stay stagnant. Once once you're on top, it's harder to stay on top. And they have they have to. Uh, pull out all the stops, you know, and with limited resources, I think uh, it's a very good move from the Singapore Bowling Association, Singapore Bowling Federation, rather, um, to share knowledge, you know. So actually, this is quite an unconventional move from uh, the federation. Yeah, uh, and and people are uh, asking, you know, why why is the federation empowering all these private academies to to you know improve and make more money? But I think. Uh, they've done the right thing by sharing their knowledge and expertise and especially recognizing that they can't do it all on their own. You know, maybe many associations fall into that trap that they want to control everything and do everything by themselves. Uh, But I think if the whole community can work together as bowling is trying to do right now, then I think that that can only be better for the sport in general. So can you see other federations, other governing bodies taking up this idea? Possibly, but for now, at least in theory, it looks like a good move. But they are going to uncharted territories. So I would like to see in the next two to three years. I'm looking forward to see what will come out of it. And that is where we'll leave it for our Game of Two Halves this week. Do rate, comment, like on iTunes, Spotify and Google Podcast. David, thank you very much for joining me. Thank you. And do join us again next time for a Game of Two Halves. That was an SPH podcast. Find us on iTunes, Google Podcasts and streaming on Google Home. Do send your feedback to podcasts at sph.com.sg. You can also check out more podcasts on various topics at straightstimes.com and bt.sg.